Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. A procession of the damned, and by the damned, I mean the excluded. We shall have a procession of data that science has excluded. But by the excluded, I mean that which will someday be the excluding, or everything that is, won't be. Hydrogen is a light, odorless gas, which, given enough time, changes into people. Or peaches. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and TheThinkBook.com. It's a weekly conversation with the interesting artists, the thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Think42 and at ThinkBook. Today is Odin Day, the 15th of October, and this is our 154th time doing this, as well as only three days away from our podcast's third anniversary. We also need to thank those of you who heard our call to action a few weeks ago and want to share that we are on our way. Thank you so, so very much. This morning, we are excited to reconnect with one of our favorite guests, a friend of the show, I would hope to assume, one that we met on episode 39 and then later shared an American prayer with on episode 72. But before we begin, Douglas wants to read the beginning of an essay he wrote back in 2009 where he daydreamed of the mainstream acceptance of his latest thing, synchro mysticism, a turn coined by Jake Katza, Hatsa Mozzarella, and developed as an internet-age spiritual practice explored by enthusiasts and self-identified synchromystics. Thank you, Jake Katza. Doug wrote this essay, Dreaming of Fame, and hoping to sell it to the literary magazine, The Believer. Anyways, Douglas? Thanks, Will. I called this essay, Watching the Watchman, a 2001 synchromystical odyssey. Prior to anything I say, I want to first acknowledge how important it is that this essay is being published in The Believer. The title of this publication has always tickled me in a quasi-religious way, and as a magazine buyer for a co-op, it is occasionally my wont to place it with the spiritual magazines. You see, I too am a believer, and that is why I probably started a synchromistic blog last fall. Believer in what, though? Exactly. Perhaps the best window into this strange little world that I intend to show you is through a thought that struck me at the airport. I was on an impromptu trip to be with my post-heart attack pre-quadruple bypassed father when I decided that God was likely a writer. Of course, it was a post-9-11 America that prompted me into thinking that the author was naturally Alan Moore. As I stood there in my socks, waiting for them to make sure that I had no bombs planted in my shoes and that I had the prescribed amount of shampoo on my person, I could almost hear the comedian and Alan Moore laughing in the background. They got the joke. 
That in mind, an adept of the esoteric field of synchromysticism is one who is able to read the larger story arc of said God the author, who is creating our existence akin to that of a bad Schwarzenegger film. This so-called synchromystic is able to bring together many disparate sources to indicate just what the universe slash Alan Moore is communicating about our present moment. Far-fetched? Maybe. The idea of synchromysticism, yes, I know how that sounds, originates <laughs> from Carl Jung's idea of synchronicity, which is the relationship of unrelated things occurring at the same time with meaning. Do you believe in coincidence? How does one account for similar historical art movements in far-flung places of the world? Or similar historical motives? Better yet, how does one account for the basic mythological structures found in every culture, even in pre-Columbian societies? The Navajo believed that everything is connected. Half the fun of Tony Hillerman's Joe Leaphorn character in his Navajo murder mystery novels is Joe's big map and his disbelief in coincidence. It's upon this enlarged map of Indian territory that Detective Leaphorn connects all the seemingly unconnected criminal dots with pushpins. A similar fondness for connection can likewise be seen in David Lynch's special agent Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks. Your liking of Agent Cooper could be a very telling barometer as to how you will react to the world I will show you. <laughs> Agent Cooper walks a line between philosophy and religion, wisdom and madness, fantasy and reality, mind and matter, and could be qualified as a believer. He is not normal. Although he works for the FBI, he relies upon metaphysical tools, dreams, types of divination, connecting seemingly unconnected items for his inquiry. Recall his sage wisdom. When two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. And in our case today, that means paying attention to the supernormal that arises from the act of reading the paranormal that's writing us. It may be a Philip K. Dick world, and we may be characters in a novel, but today we're going off the page, and we have no better guide than our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, religious scholar, author, and educator. Dr. Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University in Texas, where he's also the chair of the Department of Religious Studies. We should stress that his body of work is really a body of work, a corpus mysticum, wherein he is cataloging and co-creating an American gnosis in a hermeneutical textual tradition. More information about his work can be found at his website, kripal.rice.edu. His philosophy of authoring the impossible, where individuals become aware of their inherent and creative divinity, culminates in his 2011 book, Mutants and Mystics. But this line of thought can be traced and unfolded through all his written works, of which we're having a, such a good time becoming acquainted. Today, we consider his 2010 Authors of the Impossible, published by Chicago University Press. It's about us, you and me. Waking up inside a story and realizing with the start that we are its authors, that none of it is real, and that all of it is, to the extent that it reflects and expresses the consciousness that projected it. Hello, Dr. Kripal. How are you? I am fine. That was quite an intro. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's all downhill from here. I, I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> oh, you flatter. You flatter, Doug. Jeff, I, I got to ask, I mean, you're the chair of the Department of Religious Studies, and it's always a joke that, you know, you never talk about religion or politics at a party. You know, I, I wonder, do you ever talk about politics? Oh, it's, you know, I, just a tiny footnote. I'm actually no longer the chair. I, I did that for eight years. So, but, I, you know, 
Um, I actually begin my classes with that line. I, when I was a kid, um, I don't know how old you guys are, but but I'm 52, and in the 70s there were three things your mom told you never to talk about in polite conversation: Rel- religion, politics, and and sex. That's the one you missed there. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I tell my students that's all we're going to talk about for the next four months, and you know that's really what the study of religion is. It's the study of politics and sex and and uh, people's religious experiences all tied together. So, yeah, we talk about it all the time. Well, we just spent a, a month uh, really getting as deeply into Philip K. Dick's Vallis Pink Beam experience as we could. We, we, huh. we went inside the story as deeply as we could. We talked to a number of its friends, you know, so that it, what, what's so fascinating to me is that when I experienced it, I experienced it as literature, and then you come to find out that it's it's not just literature; it's also a retelling of his personal experiences, him coming to terms with it. What are your feelings about that book, both as literature and as nonfiction? Um, well, I first encountered that book actually through a friend, Vicki Nelson, who had, had written about it in some of her work, and I then encountered it again through one of my PhD students, Eric Davis, who who had, has written a lot about Dick and. Um, including the Vallis event. So I became really, really interested in it because it fit in beautifully with this model of reading and writing that I was developing at the time and, um, you know, read the, the Vallis trilogy. And then, of course, uh, actually, I, I did a little help with the uh, the exegesis, which came out a few years ago as well. Oh, wow. And so, you know, Dick's experience of Vallis really becomes a kind of archetype or model for me of, the writer waking up in the side of the story and, and then trying to figure out how to how to get out of the story. Um, so for me, it's you know of course it's a it's both a real event and 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 it generated a whole body of of science fiction. Um, and of course, Dick believed it also generated the books he had written before it. You know, he came to see his his novels, uh, his early novels in the fifties and sixties, is all leading up to the the Vallis revelation. What do you think of it as a work of art? Uh, either the novel? Yeah. Um, well, again, I love it. I have my students read it. I, um, it's, it's hardly a work of art in places. I mean, it's basically autobiographical, right? I, it, it, it ceases to be a novel at certain points and simply becomes a description of Dick's own experience. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what interests me, a lot of things interest me about Dick, but one of them is... You know the people I looked at in the Mutants and Mystics book. These were these were all artists or writers, professional writers, who had some sort of experience like the Vallis revelation. And instead of turning it into a religion that that one has to believe or not believe, they they turned it into a work of art um, that could then enter the culture and you know inform and shape us in other ways that would probably lie outside just belief or 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 debunking. You know, they lie somewhere else, uh, and that's really what I was interested in exploring was that that somewhere else. Well, somewhere else. Did you happen to read Barbara Ehrenreich's recent book, Living with a Wild God? I did. I I I not only read it, I wrote about it. I um, I don't know if you guys saw, but I I wrote a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, last spring called Visions of the Impossible, and it was a kind of manifesto on 
why academics, why people in the humanities and the sciences need to take uh, the paranormal seriously as as a way of getting at what mind is. Uh, And um, the piece got quite a bit of media attention, including a a screed, a kind of materialist screed in the New Republic by a biologist named Jerry Coyne. Um, but that, at that same week, uh, Aaron Reich, the book had come out, and Aaron Reich had written a piece in the New York Times basically describing her encounter with this, this biological divinity and suggesting that it's actually scholars of mysticism who have something to say here. It's not the, it's not the materialist scientists. So I, I, of course, became an instant fan of Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, because that's what I've always thought. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've read it. I've lectured on it. Uh, I've even written a little bit about it. Yeah. This is what's fascinating in, in, in looking at Philip K. Dick for a month. One of the things we come to is that the mystical experience isn't something that happens. For, it, 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 it's like something that breaks through from the other side, and then the author has to come to terms with it over the course of their entire life. Right, correct. It's it's as if the experience itself is alive, and it it doesn't want to be interpreted once and left in a box. It wants to be engaged over and over and over again over the course of a life cycle, and in the process, it then generates a corpus or body of work. And, and of course, that's what you see in Philip K. Dick. Um, what's interested What's interesting about the Ehrenreich example is she, of course, repressed it. She uh, she didn't use it to publish her body of work. She she denied it uh, until until late in life, um, and then she came back around to it. So I it's fascinating that this is the thing that she organizes what amounts to her biography around though this one right. experience. Right. That's the thing That's that right. tip like this is how she <laughs> this is what her life is about. About repressing that, <laughs> and then and then coming to terms with it, and right. you know what I find so fascinating about the Aaron Reich experience is, you know, she's not alone. We we've had a whole spate of books come out by committed materialists or committed atheists, who then have some sort of overwhelming mystical experience, and then they write a book or a <laughs> conversion narrative, essentially, and they end up coming. Uh, actually to the humanities and to the study of mystical literature is the way to handle it. So I I find that interesting um, and, of course, gratifying, but also frustrating because I wish I wish they would talk to us, you know, before, you know, before they had to do that. Um, you know, I always fantasize about what it would have been like to have a conversation with Philip K. Dick or what he would have done if he would have sat down with Mircea Eliade or Carl Jung or somebody whom he admired and how they could have helped him work through it. Yeah. In in all your research, what do you, what have you found the single like the most compelling story what may be called an anecdote? Well, there's so many. I you know, I hate that word anecdote. Right. Um, it's just it's just used to dismiss people, and it it means nothing. All it means is we can't turn this into a scientific experiment, and so therefore it doesn't exist. Um, so I I think it's just I I don't do that. Um, 
my most moving stories, frankly, are little private secret stories I get from readers who write and tell me usually about some really intimate event from their family's history. And they're usually deeply poignant uh, and, and extremely powerful because they, they, they clearly happened and they clearly changed this person's life. Uh, and they're clearly not out for any fame or money, as the debunkers like to say. They just they just want to share the experience. In doing the research for this, I I can't believe we never found your authors of the Impossible podcast series before. Or I I didn't I didn't know about them, and they're they're incredible. I did. <laughs> well, I advise all our listeners to definitely check them out. But in hearing Dean Radin's story about his laboratory. That was just so fascinating. You didn't know about Dean? Yeah, not the fact that he, he searched, you know, they, he rented a building that... Right next to where the lab had oh, been yeah. prepared for him. Yeah. Did you <laughs> tell that story? Right. I remember that story, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. Um, we just, as you know, as your opening, as your opening reading of Charles Fort there puts it, we, th- those things happen all the time. We just we damn them though. We we set them aside and pretend they don't mean anything. I got a story to share with you because it's so funny. There was a time that when I was reading Charles Fort's, uh, the 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 damned book. The book of the damned. The book of the damned. Sorry, just left my mind for a minute. But I was reading it and. I was on the chapter with all of these big chunks of ice falling out of the sky, right? So there's one as big as an elephant. It's just numerous accounts of large chunks of ice throughout history, like just falling out of the sky. And I turned on the TV, and it was a news story from, like, Miami where a 30-pound chunk of ice fell onto a golf course (laughs) in the middle of the day. Like, the sun was shining, right, in Miami. Uh Of course, they blamed it on an airplane, but as soon as I saw it, I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, there's your synchronistic reading experience, you know. And, and of course, that's what the so book is about. I mean, the, the Authors of the Impossible book is essentially about the, the textual or, or, or reading qualities of paranormal experiences, which are so often tied in with a reading practice or a writing practice. Well, what was Charles Fort's reading practice? Uh, Mr. Fort um, would go to the um, New York Public Library uh, every every afternoon, and he would read all afternoon in the New York Public Library. He'd look, read every newspaper and journal in French or English back to 1800, and he would then collect um, these stories. You know, he, sometimes he'd cut out things from newspapers that he of course, probably owned himself, or he would jot down notes on these little scraps of paper, and he put these then in shoe boxes, uh, had various kind of class classification systems, and he was looking for anomalies. You know, he's looking for things that would appear in the paper that made no sense, and and that would you know be dropped the next day and move on to the next day's news. Uh, and his books, his four books, starting with the Book of the Damned in 1919 and ending with Wild Talents in 1932, um, are really sort of eccentric ways of collecting those strange stories and putting them into some kind of patterns that, that begin to make some sense, but, but not quite. Um, well, so this is what the fascinating 
the thing that I took from Authors of the, the Impossible as I was reading this time is that oftentimes we don't have as much context for anything, but so I'll, I think moderns would give Carl Jung an awful lot of credit for what he did, but you know maybe he wasn't at the party as early as we thought. Well, are you talking about his notion of synchronicity? Yeah, so Charles Fort was definitely there, and then Frederick Meyer, too. Oh, heavens. I mean, listen, people have been having what Jung called synchronistic experiences as far back as we can see in human history. And historically, these have been you know, framed as magic or, or magical events. Uh, a, a magical event being something that's happening in the physical environment that corresponds perfectly with some mental state or some subjective intention um, or 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 that just happens and then that is read as a sign or an omen from the gods right um, so I mean these things have been part of human experience you know forever and a day um, but it really wasn't to the 19th century that people in the West at least started to try to create a theory for them that made some sense and that was in conversation with, with modern science. And of course, Jung didn't come to his synchronicity concept alone. He, he came to it with his uh, friend and colleague, Wolfgang Pauli, the, the great quantum physicist. And he, he didn't like the, the term either, did he? Pauli didn't, no, because it didn't always have to, these things didn't always have to do with time. They, they, they didn't always refer to events happening at the same time. I got to ask you a little bit about guilt. Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt, and so there's this passage somewhere in the Bible that says something along the lines of uh, "those who follow omens aren't." It's, a, it's seen as some kind of sin. Are you familiar with what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the Bible's filled with paranormal phenomena, of course, and you can go to the Bible and find passages that are extremely condemning of of. Uh, magic and 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 uh, sorcery and, and and these sorts of experiences but of course you can also go to the bible and find passages that are that use these divination practices for example uh, joseph's uh, dream divination in genesis oh, yes. or the casting of lots by the levite priests or you know jesus is cursing of a fig tree that then wilts or you know on and on and on so the so yeah, I'm very familiar with those, and of course, this is the standard response among at least fundamentalist communities that there's something demonic or evil about these phenomena. Um, you know, and where they're coming from is they're coming from a theology that basically says that all miraculous events come from God and they can't come from human beings. And of course, the history of magic is all about human beings trying to create technologies to control these things and to to do them themselves. And so that violates the this, this sort of Christian theology they're working with. Um, that, that's the source of the conflict there. Speaking of technology, and I'm thinking about the word telepathy, what is the SPR? When was it founded and to what purpose? The SPR, the, the Society for Psychical Research, was founded in 1882 uh, in London um, by a number of intellectuals, many of whom were connected to Cambridge, uh, and it was founded to study psychical phenomena. You know, this was the 
high point of the age of spiritualism and mediums in, in Victorian England. So they were kind of surrounded by this stuff. Um, and that that was the first real attempt to look at this stuff systematically from an academic perspective. Um, they used early statistics. They used statistics in an early kind of questionnaire, but they also did a lot of qualitative research where they you know, talked to people, talked to individuals who had seen strange things around the death of a loved one. But did you also know that I, I believe that same year was when Thomas Edison first lit a part of Lower Manhattan with electricity? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. I know, of course, that electricity early on was seen as a kind of occult force by a lot of these people. These, even, the, or even the early spiritualists were already using scientific metaphors to explain their religious experiences. You know, they were talking about the fourth dimension and a kind of spiritual electricity already in the 70s and 80s, you know. Seems like the more I study Orga, I'm reading a lot of Wilhelm Reich right now, and he says electricity is some kind of, okay, well, first off, he says something along the lines in God, ether, and the devil, that the main confusion of those ideas comes from a misunderstanding of organ. And then he says that one of the productions of organ is electricity, static electricity, or electromagnetism, or gravity even. Right. He was, you know, of course, he came out of Freud's circle and sort of broke with Freud over this notion of, of human erotic energy that, that Freud had called libido, and he would come to call orgon. And I mean, we tend to think of electricity and magnetism and these sort of physical forces as material forces that are out there in the material world and have nothing to do with subjectivity or consciousness. But of course, what Reich was doing was breaking down that barrier and saying, no, actually, these physical forces have something to do with uh, not just human consciousness, but with human uh, eroticism. And I, this you know, takes us back to the Ehrenreich book, because she didn't focus on the erotic aspect, but she was trying to make this argument that there's something essentially alive about electricity, right? Um, and that the physical world is, is actually not dead. It's, it's living and conscious, and, and it interacts with us in, in these mysterious and, and confusing ways. I, I think that's actually where the paranormal ultimately goes, is this breakdown between what we think of as the mental and the material. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so back to Victoria Nelson, I, she, in her autobiography about Hawaii, there's a moment where she describes that breakdown where where her inner landscape and outer landscape merged in this bay, and it was completely sublime. And I think that description is wonderful as far as, you know, and so what I want to know is what is at the core of this, like the quote-unquote paranormal, and how does one get to the other side? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the traditional answers, uh, you're probably not going to like, is that there is no way. <laughs> uh, you know, but there's a good, the, 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 answer, the reasoning's pretty pristine. Basically what a lot of the mystical traditions say is that the real problem, the thing that's, that's keeping you from that experience of a living consciousness or a living cosmos is your ego. It's your, your constructed social self that you think you are, but you in fact are not. And 
But of course, to do anything, to get to that state, it, what it, what's really happening is your ego is doing things. Your ego is being reinforced and becoming stronger and stronger the more it tries to get over to the other side, as it were. So there's this, there's a kind of ironic kind of feedback failure where the more you try to get to the other side, the the, the less likely it is um, because you're, it's your it's the ego that's doing all of that and it's the ego that's the problem. So so what what a lot of these traditions try to do is they try to come up with methods or techniques that you know can take the ego offline um without it <laughs> without it knowing that as it were. So you know these koans and these uh, acts of meditation which are essentially ways of suppressing or ignoring the ego um but I think these things happen to human beings just spontaneously, too. And I think that's what you folks are most interested in. Um, people get in a kind of trance state or in a kind of zone, and and they they have these experiences of the world as minded, as, as conscious. So I don't, I don't think you need to be a, a Zen monk or, you know, do something specific. I think these things happen to, to, to almost all of us at some point in our life. One of the fascinating stories, in terms of what animates someone in this in this realm, and I'm talking about uh, Frederick Meyer, the man who coined the term telepathy, was he had his hairy hand experience. But right. then, you know, tell us about that. But then, also tell us who is Annie Hill Marshall. You know, so I know I wrote the book, but that was. That was four years ago. I, I don't remember the details of the hairy hand. I can tell you a lot about Annie Hill Marshall. Well, um, I I don't know that the hairy hand was anything important. It seems like that was like the footnote, yeah. but the truth was Annie Hill Marshall. Right. The hairy hand was part of these this common experience in Victorian England of some kind of quasi-physical thing appearing during a seance, you know? Uh, sometimes they were truly physical things, what they called apports, which are where a flower or a rock or a stick or something would fall out of the ceiling or out of nowhere. But at other times they were like ghost-like uh, limbs or, or images would appear in the room. And that was part of the hairy hand thing, I think. Um, but and the Annie Hill Marshall story, I think, is really significant. You know, one of the things... Uh, well. When Myers coined the word telepathy, what he meant by it was pathos or, or a kind of profound emotional suffering at a distance. And his argument was essentially that people, people who see their loved ones dying or know they're dead at a great distance or even before it happens, those communications occur because of some deep emotional connection between these two people. You need the pathos to get the telepathy. Uh, and that's why it's it's kind of silly to try to test telepathy in a robust form in a laboratory because you can't you can't get that pathos there. Um, but the other thing that Myers thought telepathy was about is eros. He thought what really drove it was some kind of deep erotic um, cosmic energy that we all are. Um, and he experienced eros most intensely with this woman who was married to his cousin. Uh, and his cousin was uh, what we would today call mentally ill, uh, schizophrenic or manic depressive. I, 
whatever the the, the diagnosis might might be today, um, very erratic behavior. And Annie was the wife, and uh, there's a lot of historical suggestions that that Myers and Annie fell in love. Probably never consummated it, but but were certainly in love. Uh, and that at some point Annie gets really despairing and she tries to kill herself with a pair of scissors. Uh, can't do it and then so walks into a lake and drowns herself. Myers then spends really the rest of his life um, still in love with Annie. He marries another woman named Evie uh, but remains in love with Annie and a lot of his psychical research probably was driven by this desire to make contact with her and, and to keep this connection. Going. He was essentially in love with a ghost or in love with a, de- with a spirit. And his strongest evidence for the survival of bodily death actually came from uh, mediums who had contacted Annie. But his wife, Evie, uh, had all of that stuff removed from from his writings and even tried to uh, suppress and collect and destroy copies of a of an early book where he he wrote about it. So it's one of these fascinating stories where uh, you know it, it's all about the erotic, but it becomes a, an eroticism that's suppressed by by the jealous wife, whom of course we can understand as well. So we had a conversation recently with this individual named Joe Alexander. He's a uh, professional athlete. He wrote in Think Book 2 about this idea he calls the blur, where um, he, he cites that one incident where they mathematically proved that there was a top speed of humans, and of course humans broke that top speed, and how the media works on our subconscious to think that there's things that are, are possible that we can do as well through what we see on the TV and, and entertainment and in sports and stuff of that nature take for instance like what break dancers do compared to when break dancers started or or what skateboarders do compared to when they started or so forth and I like this idea that you present that there's some kind of spiritual uh awakening going on through media and things like the X-Men theme that you've presented and so forth and uh, thinking all of these things while reviewing your work I can't help but think of Carrie Mullisk and his talking raccoon and Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think there's a connection there? I, I do, I do. <laughs> it's a cool, I mean, it's almost like Carrie Mollusk. I mean, he's like, it's like an episode of Guardians of the Galaxy where they come down and they're like, hey, man, we need you to help us figure out this problem. Right, and then he goes off, and then he comes back, and that's what we see is just the story what, he tells. What What are the respective dates? Do you know? I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I've read many times the Mullis account in his autobiography. That was in the seventies, wasn't it? Nineteen seventy-five was the article, I think, or the book that he wrote. No aliens alive. I think he said nineteen seventy-five. Guardians of the Galaxy was definitely being printed at that time, and I know that the character Rocket Raccoon. But I think that that's details that miss the point in, in a way, because it's like the same thing that happened to Streber, how he changed the, the the population culturally. There's a lot of different things that I see, paranormal, like, because people have these paranormal experiences and they get into the media, and then other people 
steal from them or borrow that idea, and then there's trends and things become popular. But it works on the, the group subconscious or understanding or, or even right. you know, the, the belief that something's possible or certain somethings are possible. Right. Yeah. Well, of course, that's the argument of my Mutants book, right, is that, is that these, these artists and these, these writers have these paranormal experiences. They turn them into art based on their own reading and their own, their own experiences. Those then enter the public culture, and then they inform future paranormal experiences. It's a kind of loop again. It's a, it's a feedback loop between consciousness and culture that, that, that never ends and that we're all sort of in, inside, as it were. You know, uh, Whitley Strieber, I, so I, I know Whitley well. Um, we're actually working on a book together now. And something that Whitley has said that I think is just brilliant here is he'll say, look, I know that the visitor experiences I had in the 80s were, were framed in the, in, the co- in the context of the bad science fiction movies I saw as a kid in the 50s. He says, I know that. I know, I know that my visions were somehow uh, informed by those bad science fiction movies. But he also insists that what he was encountering was real. It was just using the imaginal frame of the culture. And so what he says we should be doing now is making better science fiction movies. <laughs> and I just my, find my that... argument would be even the bad ones are working for Vallis. Right? <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, you're probably right. But just imagine... If we could get out of this silly, you know, the aliens are here to, you know, blow up the planet or to, you know, end the world, and 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 we could be more faithful to people's actual experience in an abduction event, and then we could create science fiction movies around that, and and of course a lot of these are profoundly positive. They, they're transformative. They don't all involve, you know, creatures from outer space wanting to eat us. Um, which is what you know Hollywood's been giving us for for too long. <laughs> well, um, I think of I think of Howling. Uh, was it the Howling, the Streeper book before? Wolf Wolfen. Wolfen, the Wolfen. I knew I was off. I knew I was off. But the Wolfen, I see, because in Streeper's transformation book, he calls the he says he has this experience. He looks out the window and he sees wolves, and he's like, I think that the aliens were using my lifelong love for wolves to screen my memory. But right. if you go back and you look at Wolf Wolfen, you can see Wolf. Is almost the exact same movie as as Communion. It's the exact same event with just substituting the Greys as the Grey Wolves or whatever. It even takes place. They hide out in a church, so right. there's the, and then they go out and they abduct people. But it's through a fear spectrum as far because that's what he did. He wrote horror, and right. it is and, a horror book. But. Right, and and Whitley's very eloquent about that. And if you if you read Communion. I mean, I don't even think you have to read it closely. I think if you just read Communion, it's very obvious that he himself doesn't believe the framework of his visions. He, he, he understands that the imagination is at work in these experiences. He's, he's trying to make a more interesting argument that there's something about the imagination that gives us access to other species and other realities and uh, maybe even other aspects of ourselves that we can't acknowledge or we, we've lost contact with, and so we, we experience in these horror or demonic terms because we've, we've repressed them. Um, well, then what is a god? Well, that's a great question. Um, you, 
Well, the first thing I think we can say about a god is that every god that any human being has ever ever experienced was experienced by a human being. <laughs> so the first thing we can say about gods is that they're aspects of human experience. We we have no evidence that um you know canaries or elephants or chimpanzees experience gods. But human beings do all the time. And so I think the safest thing we can say is that gods are uh, human experiences that may in fact be some aspect of human beings that that we're not aware of anymore, that we, we don't have we're not in touch with. Now it's also possible that gods are some other species or some other some other thing in the environment. That's essentially what Barbara Ehrenreich argues. Um, but they, when we experience those species, we tend to see them uh, in the terms of our own cultures and our own religious backgrounds. I think that's possible too. Um, but I, I personally do not know what a god is, but those would be my two best guesses. They're either they're either projections of some deep, deep, deep thing about human nature, or there's some other species or being in the environment that we, we can only experience through our cultural imaginations. I like the idea that, that and you bring this up in Authors of the, in the Impossible, is that the story focuses, and so the god is kind of the focus of the culture. Right. And given that, what do you think, I mean, what, is, what does that say about our, our culture right now? What do we believe in? It depends on what aspect of our culture. I mean, there's a lot of aspects of our culture, obviously. I, you know, if you're talking about our popular culture, I think it's pretty healthy, and I think we have lots of gods and goddesses and divine beings that we're imagining and playing with now in the popular culture, um, but but not in any strict literal way or religious way. If you're talking about our kind of elite academic culture, I think. I think we've got our stuff exactly backwards. Um, in the world I inhabit, in academic worlds, the order of knowledge puts disciplines that think everything is dead uh, on top, and they put those disciplines that study living things or human beings on the bottom. So physics, which basically says everything's a bunch of tiny dead things bouncing around in space, uh, is the premier um, academic discipline and something like the study of religion or literature, which is really about studying consciousness that's coded in culture, is on the very bottom. Um, and then, you know, people who do other things like the social scientists or the chemists or the biologists are somewhere in the middle. So we, we've, we've seemed to privilege uh, a dead world over over a living one. And I think that actually has profound consequences for the, the public culture um, because that's a very depressing uh, uh, worldview to inhabit. And so people tend to either go into uh, these, these uh, fundamentalist religions, which you know, push back on that, or they just become purely secular, you know, purely materialist. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. That was it? That was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs>
Well, I mean, three minutes were taken up with Douglas's reading. You've no, that's listening. fine. I hope I hope we got something out of that. Oh, we got hope... lots. Yeah. Oh yes, this is a lot of fun. And, and hold on, just for a second, we'll finish up the little outro, and then we'd like to chit chat with you for just a little bit longer. Sure, sure. You've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey Kripal on Forty Two Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook dot com. You can find information about Dr. Kripal's work at Kripal dot edu for more information about the sync book our guests check out past shows including those with dr kripal or to subscribe to the podcast via itunes please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com if you like the podcast please support it by becoming a donor you'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge thanks so much and our beer man comes on tuesday What does that mean, Douglas? Do you think think anybody will get that line? No, no one gets any of our jokes. I I love that line. I I love Sport. He's so fantastic. Only Sportians are going to have any clue.